welcome. You're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander with me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. And me, Reverend Terry Menefigal. Yay, we're back. Yes, we are. And we're here still talking about Outlander and theology and God talk and whatever you called God. That's what we're talking about in conversation with our favorite series ever, Outlander. Yep. Quick recap of uh, what we hope to accomplish. So we're here to have conversation around the religion, theology, and spirituality of the Outlander series, primarily the books. We'll see where we go. We started with romance as a genre and Outlander's role in that, right? Yes. Uh, So quick recap of of what we did in the last episode and then how, how we're doing today. Or what we're talking about today. So romance is really one of those genres that everybody kind of knows. And and it kind of requires you to have this amazing heroine and this amazing hero. And they get together and the whole story is about how they come together. And then there's a happily ever after. That's kind of the basic structure of a romance. And that structure for a romance has really not been appreciated by literary critics circles or academic Mm -hmm. world since it's been around. (laughs) So So not taken seriously. No, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we have felt and ha- and one of the reasons why we're having this particular conversation is that we believe that romance as a genre and as literature is worthy of a higher level conversation. In particular, we certainly believe that uh, romance is worthy of a theological conversation mm-hmm. and is worthy of an academic conversation in those circles. At least within the Christian tradition, when romance is talked about, it's about marriage preservation. <laughs> and that is really the only, um, when you talk about it in church, you do romance in order to keep your marriage alive or to re- you know rekindle the flame or something like that. And so there's no serious conversation, theological constructions around romance. And maybe we need to define what we mean by romance, particularly as we're talking about romance theology today. How does that fit within theology? Because I'm sure there's probably people listening go, huh? What what, what the hell? (laughs) How can you combine those two? (laughs) That's sexy stuff. Why are we talking about that in God? God doesn't have anything to say about that. (laughs) Well, actually, God does. <laughs> and yeah. Or the scripture, the traditions yes, do. We don't really do. know what God says. That's a, that's a whole other question. Yes, yeah. that's a bigger question. Yeah, so the, there is actually a history of romance theology. So we're mm-hmm. not the first people ever in the world to wonder about whether or not the love that we share romantically with another person or persons is kind of in line with our love with God mm-hmm. or our love with the great other or our mm-hmm. love with the bigness as as Jamie likes to call it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I will not take proprietorial claim over that. That That is my friend Emma's word, but it's <laughs> I love it. The bigness, I think, captures everything. When we talk about romance, as far as a history of romance theology, which we're about to get into, are we meaning romance as candles and flowers and chocolates and a a romantic dinner, that kind of thing? Or are we meaning something else, just to be clear? I'm hoping to mean this is something different. I think this is more of, gosh, this is more of a a touching of your heart and soul. This is an Mm -hmm. intimacy that, that runs extremely deep. The romance genre, romance literature 
generally tends more towards that. It, it, it isn't more of the, oh, well, I've, I've come home, honey, and we're going to have, go out and have dinner and, and that type of mm-hmm. thing. It, it is the, and he came to me and he touched my soul and ripped my heart open in ways that I wasn't quite expecting. And it, it's that connection between another person that is definitely not platonic, that does involve intimate sexual relation. Mm. It, 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 and it touches you in a very overpowering and overcoming and life-giving way. I think that's what I'm kind of hmm. trying to get at. Almost like a, well, maybe like a, a positive version of invasive, uh, you know, or, yes. or being overwhelmed by something. And it's it's overwhelming. It's overpowering what you hmm. expected with this person. Sometimes it's of your own choosing, but sometimes it is completely by surprise. Is that also an element of it? Yeah, it's like you didn't know that there was a part of you missing type of thing. I mean, and you're a whole person of your own, but when you're with this other person, you're more than that. Mm. Instead of Mm. one plus one equaling two, it's one plus one Mm. equals three. It's something you cannot escape and you don't want to. In the context of capitalist (laughs) Valentine's Day, roses, flowers, (laughs) romantic dinners, that kind of stuff, that maybe we need to be clear about what we mean by romance. No, no. And, And anybody out there who's ever read traditional romance... You understand that this type of love that happens between the hero and the heroine is its own special thing. Mm. It is it mm. is not just all of the women the rake has has bedded. It's not the the man that she should be marrying because mm. they're they get along just fine. Mm-hmm. This is a passion. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key word here is that this is a passion that borders mm-hmm. on not really necessarily obsessive because that's that can be bad. That could be bad. That could yeah. be very bad. But it, but it is passion that fills our every fiber of our being. It fills all of our cells up. Cool. And so, so let's talk a little bit about some people who actually started putting this together with their faith life. Charles Williams is the first person who actually coined the phrase romance theology. So Charles Williams was one of the Inklings. The Inklings were four theologians slash writers back in the 1930s mm-hmm. in England. And mm. you, and two of those Inklings you know very, very well. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings series and The Hobbit, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis. Oh, who wrote Narnia. Yeah. yeah, he wrote all the Narnia books as well as several other theological treatises of his mm-hmm. own and was a theologian mm-hmm. in his own right. And Charles mm-hmm. Williams was one of this group that met regularly to talk about their writings and to read each other's writings. And he was obsessed with Dante. Right, okay. He was obsessed with Dante's obsession with Beatrice. He had his own Beatrice in his life that he was <laughs> obsessed with. And so he put this together with his theological leanings, with his faith life, and kept a notebook of his thoughts on what romantic theology might aim at. He was also a poet, and he wrote other narrative. He wrote fiction as well. But he wrote several theological uh, explorations of Dante's work. And then he died, <laughs> rather yeah. rather suddenly, right after the war ended in Europe. Uh, he died. And so his thinkings on romance theology were never really put together in a published work. But his notebook Mm -hmm. was ultimately published. And so his principles of romantic theology are kind of reduced to a single formula. It identifies that passionate love that we have Mm. for another person with our love of Jesus Christ and our Mm. marriage, our bonding to that person 
with Jesus's life. It comes down to the idea of God is with us. And I, I, I mm. like that. Incarnational yes. Emmanuel sort of aspect, right? Absolutely. Emmanuel, which means God with mm. us. Everything else modifies and, and illustrates God with us. And mm. romantic theology for him is, it starts as a Christology, which is a big, big word that just means how does Jesus fit in this world uh, mm. with the idea of the great bigness? Yeah. How do we understand the person of Jesus in the in the context of Christianity Correct. Is, is Christology? And there's obviously lots of different Christologies. So his, romantic theology is based in how we what we believe about Jesus and how basically. we love Jesus. So yeah. the love yeah. of Jesus kind of translates over to this love and passion for another person. Another person who did this was Teresa of Avila, she, mm-hmm. many centuries earlier. <laughs> so she was one of the medieval mystics, right? She was. And she was one of the mid- medieval mystics during, I believe, the Reformation. She had these ecstasies during prayer time. Mm -hmm. She was a mystic, which is not unusual for the Catholic tradition at that time. And her description of her prayer ecstasies or visions or whatever she was having while she was praying were very sexual and very erotic. And Mm -hmm. she's describing her relationship with Jesus in these passionate, erotic ways where mm. her ecstasy is is orgasmic. Hmm. She's a nun. So within the Catholic tradition at that time, you were a bride of Christ. In some ways, did she take that literally, I guess, within her... Yeah. I, I, I mean, <laughs> religious I... Religious life, <laughs> her, her personal devotion practices. You, you didn't see that kind of description very often, is what I'm trying yeah. to say. You, well, I'm sure the church weren't keen on it no and actually didn't really like what she was doing and and there's this this Mm. beautiful piece of artwork this sculpture of one of her ecstasies in her autobiography called the life of Teresa of Jesus and she looks like she's having an orgasm and when the artist released this it was a scandal it was a complete Mm. scandal to see Teresa of Avila this saint enraptured and caught up in this ecstasy with an angel piercing her over and over again with a long spear of gold. I mean, mm. this is it's very, very this is erotic. Penetrative imagery. Yeah. yeah. So she has this sexual, this erotic imagery with Jesus. Charles Williams kind of echoes that mm. in his writings about Christ. Our conversation in romantic theology is, is nothing really new, but we are endeavoring to create a new conversation on the subject mm. that encompasses a greater circle than that, that, that encompasses a larger group of people yeah. that is more inclusive. Yeah, that it's not just within the Christian tradition, but how can we do this just as people? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so we've talked about Charles Williams, who's obviously from the Christian tradition. We've talked about Teresa of Avila or Avila. So I'm also wondering, just within scripture maybe, is there something, some space in which we can talk about romance? Because again, I think, I mean, we said this in the last episode, also we're from the Christian tradition, so that's what from what we can speak. But... The church separates the body. There's very rarely, you know, conversation around sort of holistic experiences that, you know, talk about sex and stuff in a way that's basically be married or don't do it. So I think maybe looking at some texts from both Christian and and Jewish traditions as we'd find in the Hebrew Bible around romance might be useful. So where, Terry, 
um, would you think we should go from here? Well, okay, so in, in the New Testament, in the Christian scriptures, Christ is often referred to as the bridegroom and the church right, okay. is the bride. And that comes from the Jewish traditions where, where God is the bridegroom and the people of Israel are the bride. But in, in New Testament scripture, you've got Ephesians. And I'll just kind of read what it says and and take this as you wish. <laughs> please, please do not think that just by quoting the scripture, we're not going to challenge it because again, yeah, because it's been used. Uh, yeah, yes, for, yeah. it's been yeah. it's been used as one of those one to punch scriptures to females mm. a lot. Mm. And it, we mentioned that we're feminists. And yeah. so we, we do want to encounter the scripture and take it on. So yeah. it's Ephesians 5. And if, if, if you're a good evangelical, you probably know exactly what I'm about to quote. <laughs> it starts like this. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. <sighs> For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything mm. to their husbands. Mm. <sighs> If I just say I don't like Paul, <laughs> I actually like Paul, but this isn't actually Paul. So this is Deuteronomy. I know, I so know, this, but this, just this I'm like, oh, this is somebody writing like Paul and, and challenge me on it. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for you to tell me that I'm wrong and that it's definitely Paul. But no, 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 this isn't Paul. It's not the same kind of writing. So all of that crap on wives being subject to your husband is followed up with this: husbands love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her and washing and the washing of water by the word, because you see, the wife is dirty. So, so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or a wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes. So that she may be holy and without blemish. And what about him? Doesn't he need to be holy and without blemish? Apparently not. He's going to wash him. Anyway, keep Apparently going. Apparently not. Sorry. Well, again, and he can't go into Walgreens because there are no <laughs> there are no douches or, or or products for men so that he can wash his genitals and be clean. Oh. oh. So in the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. Mm. He who loves his wife loves himself and there's there's some good stuff in that in the sense you know because we grew up being told wives love your husbands basically do what your husbands tell you to because your husbands make you a full person yeah and i completely disagree with that so you know (laughs) husbands don't make us full people we are full in and of ourselves whatever yes but what's not talked about when they are teaching that is husbands love your wives just as christ loved the church and gave himself for it and so this idea of sacrifice as part of love as well yes Um, yes so i mean there is a i'm not going down the route of complementarianism at all so please don't write in and be upset about this but if your christology says you know christ loved the church and gave himself for the church and for our sins and this ultimate sacrifice sort of thing then that's that's a big deal the burden seems to be placed on wives when we're emphasizing this text and there is an equal burdened i would say to the husbands as well but equal but different yeah as i've said i have issues with this text there's definitely a burden on both and i can remember actually hearing this when i was in the baptist church and how how the person preaching it was saying 
it just says wives you have to be subject to your husbands but husbands you have to love your wives this is a completely mm. different commandment and i'm like <laughs> so wives don't need to love their husbands they're not. just subject to him yeah, yeah and that's that's an issue with when you take scripture out of context when you take a literal yeah. interpretation of scripture now there there are other books other letters other epistles in the new testament mm. that actually refer to something like this but there's mm. a, there's also this other beautiful version of christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And that's throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the New Testament, and it talks about the apocalyptic happenings towards Mm -hmm. the end of time. There's all kinds of metaphor through it. Mm -hmm. You can't read it just of itself. You really need to have somebody there with you. Yeah, it's kind of... John on an acid trip. It really, really <laughs> <You need>. is. <laughs> it's like John of Patmos, unfortunately, is all alone on this mm-hmm. island, and he starts seeing these crazy things, or at least starts writing about them. And he uses mm-hmm. apocalyptic literature, which is not a new literature. It's a genre, yes, in and of itself. Yes, and you're always going to find crazy, weird sh- stuff. <laughs> <laughs> An apocalyptic yeah, we genre. We haven't really talked about how we're dealing with profanity no, on this podcast. Um, so. so if anybody is listening with their kids and that really is important to you, then let us Please know. Please let us know. We'll be we'll be kind <laughs> up until that point. We'll restrain ourselves. Revelation, it, it talks a lot about Jesus being the Lamb of God. And then the Lamb is ascended into heaven and then is coming down to earth, which is the church mm. or the elect or those who however have been chosen, interpret, however yeah. you interpret it. That is the bride, and the bride is being prepared for the bridegroom. Towards the end, at the end, after everybody has gone through the lake of fire and everybody has been Mm. cleansed, John says this, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And so the husband is the lamb of God. The husband is Jesus. The husband is the Christ. And it's it's a vision of this unifying mm-hmm. salvific act between mm-hmm. God and God's people. So this reconciliation yes. between the two. It's yeah. all about the two coming together in not necessarily a passionate embrace. It doesn't really speak to that, but it does mm-hmm. speak to a forever commitment a forever Mm. uh, not not contract but a sacrament this is the forever sacrament of the bride and the bridegroom and and that and that god is the one who makes that possible i think you can could infer passion in it's not necessarily in a sexual sense obviously but you could infer it in just the sense of all the things that god whoever God is, has done in order to make this possible. So, you know, the links to which God has gone either, you know, if you believe in the Trinity, then, you know, the the coming to earth, crucifixion, a dying resurrection, all of those things in order to reconcile people to God's self. That is an act of passion. Right. Hell, we even call the passion of Christ, you know. Right, right, right. So I do think that there is an inference toward passion, but again, it's not necessarily one of a sexual nature. Right. And, and if you're looking at the other traditions in our faith, the Jewish tradition and the Islamic mm. tradition, it's the gift of the Quran. It's it's the yeah. gift of the Torah that God yeah. gives to God's people 
in a, a, an amazing offer of saying this mm-hmm. is how to live mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. we can be right together. Well, within the within the Jewish tradition or Hebrew Bible, obviously, you've got this body of wisdom literature, too. So that's another genre that you find within scripture. So we've got apocalyptic, we've got historical, we've got poetry, we've got wisdom literature, we've got la 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 la, just plain narrative. Um, and so wisdom literature, you'd see primarily Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Obviously, Song of Solomon is probably the main example that people would pull out if, you know, if you're talking about love, sex, romance in the Bible, most of the time, Song of Solomon's the place where people go first, right? Did you know Song of Solomon was actually, you weren't allowed to in the Baptist church read Song of Solomon until you're 21 years old? Really? Really. I grew up in the Baptist church, but no one ever told me that. Did they ever point out Song of Solomon whenever you were a teenager? No, no, no. No, no, I never no. heard. I never heard a sermon on Song of Solomon, but I found it myself. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I can remember the moment I found it. I was in England. <laughs> I was in England and I was 15 years old and I had my Bible and I was bored at a meeting and I'm like, you know what? I don't know that I've ever really read this book in depth. And I started overheating. I'm sitting in this meeting in England as a missionary. And and, and I'm like, you had a revelation. Sure I did. It's like, damn, Jesus, that's awesome. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. True story. Yeah, so Christians tend to interpret Song of Solomon as this allegorical sort of love story between Jesus and the church. The Jewish tradition doesn't necessarily, it doesn't teach that, obviously, because Jewish tradition is believe in Jesus. But yeah, so if you just take the text at, you know, at its word, basically, you read it as it is. It's a love story between a man and a a woman. They describe each other's bodies in very uh, specific detail, as well as sex act but also in a really in really poetic beautiful sort of terms there's also within the Jewish tradition that you can interpret that as the woman being Sophia which is wisdom so throughout the Hebrew Bible wisdom if it's personified you know how we call you know ships her or cities her kind of thing so wisdom is a her as well within the Hebrew Bible and so there is a a, an idea that perhaps if it is allegory then it might be a man or humanity's love for wisdom, seeking after wisdom. Wisdom has breasts, twin breasts. Yeah, like twin deer. breasts like gazelles um, <laughs> jumping, jumping through, the, through. through the hills. And, 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 and yeah. his, his legs are like columns. He has legs, columns of cedar. Yeah. <gasps> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> but then, yeah, in Proverbs, there are little bits and pieces yeah. that are sort of related to romance. And we even see Jamie quotes Proverbs yes. in... Um, a breath of snow and ashes. He says three things astonish me, nay four, saith the prophet. And so, and I'll just read it. Jamie's hand squeezed my thigh, meaning Claire's thigh. And I looked down to see that he was also watching the couple under the chestnut trees, his eyes half closed. The ways of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on the rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. And Aww. Jamie's quoting Proverbs 30. Um, so there are stories and references to romantic life or romantic love within the Hebrew Bible. And then also, you know, in the prophets, it's less of a positive thing. But, you know, Hosea and his relationship with his wife, Gomer, as an analogy to God's relationship with God's wayward people. Um, that story has and, always bothered me. 
It has me too. Was it Phyllis Tribble talks about texts of terror related to women's experiences in the Hebrew Bible. And I think that might be one of them. I can't remember exactly, but certainly Hosea's relationship to to Gomer is a is a problematic one. Well, it's just it's fraught with all kinds of questions of why would God set mm. them up like this? Yeah, absolutely. Why is she I mean she has to live somehow? You know, mm-hmm. it's just it's just mm-hmm. a it, it it's just it's a horrible horrible thing. Mm-hmm. But there is still a reference to God as the bridegroom to God's people, the bride. Adulterous people. And and the yeah. and the bride is always the adulterous people. It's just it, yeah. ugh. and the church mm-hmm. has always had kind of a and I, I, I'm speaking specifically of the Christian church has always kind of had a push me pull me tension relationship mm-hmm. with the idea of marriage. Paul didn't really like the idea of marriage. Paul wasn't married, was he? Well, okay, so there's a... Or do we really... We don't really know that, do we? We don't know that. And so I, mm. I've heard several theories on that, actually. Um, one of them was that mm. Paul had to have been married. Paul mm. was a leader. To have been in religious leadership in the Jewish tradition at the time. Yeah, he would have yeah. had to have been married um, to have yeah. been taken seriously. And so when he becomes a Christian, when he converts, mm. the belief is maybe he left his wife or his wife left mm. him. And mm. and they said, nope, you, she is now permitted to leave you and go find another. I've also heard, <laughs> I had when I was in college, I had a youth uh, director, a Baptist youth director, who introduced the idea of Paul being gay? Ah, and that was mm. his. That was the thorn in his side. Right, thou dost protesteth too yes, much. Sort exactly. of idea of, of the reason he stayed oh, abstinent like was because mm. he was gay and he felt that and he was in the closet. Yeah, <laughs> and that. Let me just say, when I was in college, that freaked me out. I can imagine. And it opened my mind. Sorry, on... y'all, if this is freaking you <laughs> out. Well, it, it opened my mind. It opened my mind mm. in ways that I was not prepared to open it at the time, and I'm so grateful yep. for at this moment mm. because because now I, I I always think of Paul a little bit more like you know like me. So the Christian wedding rite, because people, because Jesus didn't come back to earth within, you know, 10 years of dying and 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 mm-hmm. and, and being raised from the dead. Yeah, cuz the early church were like he's Waiting. coming back tomorrow. Yeah. Maybe it'll be in a week. But his return is imminent. Yes. You know, and so they're just it, everything felt immediate for them. Right. And, yeah, 2000 years later we're still waiting, so we'll see. Right. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see if this happens today. Um <laughs> mm. but Right after Jesus' death, right after the ascension in the book of Acts. And and so people are are waiting around for his return. And so they're delaying things like having babies. They're Mm -hmm. delaying things like getting married. Why live this life if we're going to disappear in a little bit anyway? And unfortunately for many towns, they delayed things like getting their taxes to the Romans. And that caused a lot of animosity with the Romans. And so, which is one of the reasons why... The Christian church mm-hmm. was not loved by mm-hmm. the Roman government. Ultimately, wedding rites had to happen because Jesus didn't come back right away. And mm-hmm. people kind of wanted to be together. And there was that whole passion thing going on. And so mm-hmm. Christian wedding rites started up again and or began. And mm-hmm. the Catholic church and the Protestant church usually has in their services something about Christ as the bridegroom and mm-hmm. the bride of the church. And so in the Roman Catholic's service it's this quote may they always honor each other and love each other as christ loved his bride the church so it's kind of interesting that they've they've put it on each other to be christ Mm. in that situation but there's still the whole gender issue of christ and loving his bride the church Mm. 
Mm. And that's one of the problems with this kind of theology. That's one of the limitations, I guess, with it, is the understanding of romantic theology as a power differential based in gender. Yeah. And that that is not useful <laughs> for <laughs> not us <today>. anymore. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very conscious that the whole conversation we've been having is obviously using hetero (laughs) heteronormative language um and so we are assuming male female and the pronouns that we're using so yeah as we're talking about this it sets up power differential you're right about the gender dynamics but it also is really difficult in making space for or or, uh, ignorance of making space for same-sex marriage as well or same-sex romantic theology too yeah yeah yeah. it it only assumes the male female couple and even within that dynamic it assumes it places the husband in the role of Mm. god god is the bridegroom yes and 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 has that ever been has that ever happened before (laughs) i don't know has that ever happened and it always places the wife in the role of the not so faithful and ever in need of direction people of god mm, so yeah. so the women are the always one who the lesser must be guided yeah yeah, yeah the woman is mm. always the lesser the one who has to be taught the one who has to be mm. shown the right way mm. and the husband is then the god in the relationship and that mm. is oh that just makes my skin crawl yeah 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 yeah, yeah. this isn't yeah. acceptable today no it doesn't serve us and and i would argue it didn't serve us back then either no it didn't it didn't but it was certainly well patriarchy (laughs) it served patriarchy um it served to preserve the power structures at the time uh, and and it serves the power structures now yes Um, the problem is that we are we're fighting against that as feminists Uh, yeah and there are better ways that we are convinced of so imagine you're like a a roman governor Mm. and you're stuck Mm -hmm. in this place called palestine and suddenly Mm -hmm. there's this new sect Mm -hmm. of judaism that pops up and they're telling everybody and and they did tell everybody that men and women are equal and Mm -hmm. uh, read your galatians (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and that they have equal standing with god and and they stop having babies because jesus is going to come back anytime Mm-hmm. And the entirety of the Roman system is based on a strong mm-hmm. family structure of families mm-hmm. having at least five babies in a lifetime mm-hmm. to, to maintain the empire. Mm-hmm. For taxes. For tax purposes. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. they figured out that a woman would probably have, on average, about five children in her lifetime, mm-hmm. factoring in infant mortality. And that the, the man was head of that because, you know, Zeus mm-hmm. and what have you. And so... Imagine a sect of Judaism that comes along and says, no, Jesus is going to come back soon. We don't have to worry about this. And they start enforcing some pretty hard stuff and feeding the Christians to the lions and cracking down so that they can get Mm -hmm. their tribute and so that they can Mm -hmm. keep um, reproducing. And it wasn't just, it was also... um, if you're not if you're not having children, you're not getting married, you're not paying your taxes because you're waiting for this other thing to happen. This other thing that is bigger and more important than the empire. And so it wasn't it wasn't just the you you know we're getting thrown to the wolves or the lions because you're not paying your taxes. It's about aligning yourself to a different power and about saying God and my relationship with with God through how we understand Jesus that kind of stuff. That is where my devotion lies. That is where my attention lies. And Caesar go hang is pretty much yeah. kind of the... <laughs> and that's treason. And that's, and and that's, that's treason. treason. And so yeah, that's yeah. why you end up with things like Ephesians, which is somebody writing 
under the name of Paul, which was not mm-hmm. a, an unusual thing back then. It was totally acceptable. Mm-hmm. It was a genre type writing and uh, saying, hey, guys, if we're going to survive mm-hmm. as a church, women, you mm-hmm. need to be subject to your husbands because they're killing us all. I'm not a Pauline scholar at all, but is it also possible that perhaps that was inserted once the church became a more a more formalized structure and rooted in patriarchal system? I that, would have to go back uh, and do the redactive research on this, but I, I mm-hmm. think it was before before you get Constantine coming in, that you've okay. got you've okay. got some of so that. So it's still fairly yeah. early church before the the main structures came into place. I think they're believing that that those particular and I'll I'll go back and do some research on that. But I'm thinking that they're believing that those particular epistles were written so that so that the church would become a little more culture normative, kind of blend in a little bit more even though yeah. they're the church, so that they don't be obliterated. So it's a survival tactic. Let's let's become a bit more normative so yeah. that we Absolutely <laughs> won't be targeted tactic. as much. Exactly. So it's context. And our context today mm-hmm. is very different. And I think mm-hmm. that's why we need to release the bondage that these types of verses put on us. Yeah. 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 We talked about it not being uh, gender neutral, that this type of thing. It's always Christ as the male and the church Mm -hmm. as the female. And so it doesn't really assume same-sex couples. Mm -hmm. It doesn't assume people of varying genders. So it's it's not inclusive at all. It, it, It has its place. Obviously, yeah. in the in the theological circles and in theological conversation, but if we are trying for a more inclusive conversation, then then we need to break out of that particular limit. We need yeah. to break through that. So, romance literature, the stuff that your mama read, <laughs> stuff that her mama read, actually undermines that traditional power differential between a man and a woman. And if we're talking just about relationships between men and women, romance Mm -hmm. literature traditionally has handled those. Now, there's great romance literature got very, very popular in the 90s for same-sex couples. And and there are other other gender-bending traditions Mm -hmm. that are out there in romance literature. But traditional Mm -hmm. romance literature between a man and a woman generally places... Fabio on the cover. Yeah, Fabio. The the one you have to rip off if you're going to be reading it on a train. That actually subverts what we normally experience it, it subverts our experience yeah. and subverts it how so let, yeah let's be a little bit more specific about the subversion subverts because even though there's still the the traditional gender dynamics in those traditional romance literature stories yes there's this idea that the woman has power there's this untamable man no one else has succeeded <laughs> in making him a gentleman or making him into this respectable figure or taming this yes absolutely wild beast yes he's this is beauty and the beast (laughs) yeah 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 and so you have this woman who comes in and she's able to do that yes we go back and we talk about you know christ as bridegroom and all that kind of stuff that yeah and she does it as you're saying she does it by not following the rules yeah that's that's the kicker she does it by being a strong female and not the submissive one and she argues with him yes and she fights back and and she tells him (laughs) yes and she tells him that she can live without him yeah she walks away that's that's the beauty of this is that it's it's not necessarily a coming together as in Mm -hmm. the the traditional marriage contract type of Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. this is a land has not been exchanged yes so my focus in seminary was in Mm -hmm. narrative theology and film theology my uh, master's thesis was written on this 
idea of parable and myth. And I'm going to argue here that the traditional marriage rite and the way we understand marriage from scripture traditionally is mythic. It is the mythic okay. relationship of, of like, you know, Helen of Troy and, and the, the coming mm-hmm. together of two kingdoms. It's the coming together of two families. And so that's, that's the mythic interpretation of this. And I'm going to argue that romance novels in general have been the parable to that. So what is myth? Myth, according to John Dominic Crossan, my very favorite, mm-hmm. if you're listening, I love you so much. <laughs> He's, he's, he's a he's father, John Dominic Crossan, and so I probably should be very careful about that. But um, I just love this man. He wrote this wonderful book called The Dark Interval, and it, it mm-hmm. goes towards explaining myth and parable based on the structure of the story. And, and I'm, not, I'm not talking mm-hmm. about myths with centaurs and traditional Greek mythology with gods and goddesses uh, coming down to earth and impregnating poor women or turning other people into spiders and things. I'm not, I'm mm-hmm. not talking about that. I'm talking about everyday stories that inform us as a community that we all mm-hmm. accept as mm. the basic rule of how the world works. Right, okay. So myth, With you. yeah, myth actually establishes our world. It gives us a lens. So if, if we are, if, if story is the ocean in which we swim, mm-hmm. we see our entire world through our stories. And so mm-hmm. the, the story becomes the way we understand our experience in the world. And it a myth helps reconcile our experiences mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. how the how we believe the world should work. Right, okay. So if we have an experience that doesn't quite fit in, mm-hmm. if if we have this experience of, hey, you know, I've worked so hard, I should get that promotion because I'm a hard worker. And mm-hmm. the stories back in the 19th century during the Industrial Revolution of, mm. of boys and girls working really hard and making it to the top, those mm. stories inform us. But if we don't get the promotion and some schmuck mm-hmm. who has just been there for three months gets the promotion. Or the one who married the boss's daughter right, or whatever. Right, yeah. We try to reconcile that with yeah. our myth and say, you know, if I just worked a little bit harder, mm. you know, I, I'm going to work a little bit harder in this way and I'll prove it. And, mm-hmm. and, and what it does is it doesn't actually present a solution to our dilemma. It presents the hope that there is one. Mm. And that's all we mm-hmm. need. That's all myth does. It presents the hope. So if you're looking at Star Wars as myth, it presents mm-hmm. the hope that the Empire can be destroyed, even though we have histories, histories yeah. written of the Empire not being destroyed, the Empire yeah. taking and slaying entire cities. Yeah, and the Empire just continuing to march on. Yes, look at what the Roman Empire <laughs> did, and they're like, well, yes, it fell. And I'm like, well, yeah, after 800 years, it was 800 <laughs> years is a pretty strong success story. So It wasn't, yeah. Yeah, so you, yeah. You've, got, you've got myth as a, a way of being able to handle and reconcile the things that are just not right with our experience in the world. And so yeah, we still okay. believe that if we work hard, we're going to go places, even if we mm-hmm. didn't go places. Parable is the story that tells you, hey, hey, wait a minute, that's not true. Parable is the story that points to the fact that these differences are irreconcilable. And it asks you to find a solution. It asks mm-hmm. you to do a different thing. It says that, you know, hey, you didn't get that job. Guess what? You can go to another job. Somebody else who will yeah. actually appreciate you. Because you work hard, and mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't require that much hard work. Maybe you're just working for a dick. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
maybe things don't work that way. Maybe it's about politics mm-hmm. and you need to hop up mm-hmm. on politics a little bit. Or maybe this is a justice issue or... Yeah, and, and so it, it turns things on its head. It sure does. And so here's, here's so you don't yeah you don't just swallow it hook line and sinker correct and sinker you question it you question it and and what it mm. does ultimately is it expands the idea of myth it expands mm. your world it helps you see into the dark corner of the ocean that you couldn't see because the mm. myth was blocking it and and it allows you to live in that subversive dark place for a while and healthily. Right. So this is the quote that John Dominic Crossan says in The Dark Animal. It's, it's my favorite quote ever. Myth says, you have built a lovely home, myth assures us, mm-hmm. but whispers the parable, you are right above an earthquake fault. <laughs> Your world is about to break apart. And the question mm. is, are you still going to be you? Are people still mm-hmm. going to love you? Are, are you still going to have relationships? Mm-hmm. Is this really still going to be the way of it? Jesus does this. And the way John Dominic Crossan gets this theory is from looking at Jesus's parables in the Gospels. The parable of the forgiving father is is one of them. And I'll just very briefly go through it. It's it's You might know it as the prodigal son. I was about to say, yeah. are you meaning the prodigal I'm son? I'm meaning the prodigal son. But there, there are three right. actors in this. So there's the, there's the mm-hmm. two sons and the father. And there's the two sons, the good son, who stays and mm-hmm. works hard. The bad son, who mm-hmm. says, I'm going to take my inheritance and I'm out of here, dad. And um, right. he takes the inheritance while his dad is still living which is important Mm -hmm. to note and the dad Mm -hmm. gives it to him which is important Mm -hmm. to note and after a few Mm -hmm. years of hard living he finds himself on hard times the son does comes back Mm -hmm. home and says I'm not worthy to be your son the father embraces Mm -hmm. him gives him everything and the older son thinks well this is crap (laughs) <laughs> what have I worked yeah. real hard for? Okay, so there's your parable yeah. for the hardworking son. Yeah, so the myth would be you work hard enough. Yeah. As, you know, with the example that you were giving. Yeah. You, you give your all, you do the best you can, and you'll get rewarded for that yep. somewhere, somehow along the way. And the parable then says, you know what? No. No. Sometimes it's given to the layabout son yep. who hasn't done jack. But there's an even deeper parable here. And it's about Mm. the dad. In the Proverbs that everybody at the time would have understood, Jesus was telling this story to the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they would know the story. Mm. There is a proverb that says that a father is a fool for giving Mm. away his inheritance while he still lives. Mm. And the people listening to this parable of Jesus know that the father... That proverb. They know that proverb and they know Mm. that the father in the story is God. So what Jesus Mm -hmm. is saying is that God is an Mm -hmm. absolute fool. And he's saying this in front of the people who could kill him for saying that. So he's saying God is a fool. God is is so in love with us Mm. that God is going to do foolish things like this for us. And that expands your understanding of God. It expands your understanding of forgiveness. It expands your understanding of what being a fool is. And it expands this idea that hey, maybe all of us are okay. And that there's not anything specifically you need to do in order to earn it. Yes. Uh, You don't need to work hard enough. You don't need to have met so many performance goals. Yes, and, and, you know, (laughs) you can go off and have a little fling if you need to, Mm -hmm. and and you can Mm -hmm. come back. There's always Mm -hmm. open arms. Yeah. Yeah, that was a biblical parable. But let's talk a little bit about myths that we talk about today. So according to Levi-Strauss, Claude Levi-Strauss, who was an anthropologist in the 20th century, it's not just the ancient stories that inform us. It's our current stories and how they've been manipulated so that they are our stories today that are our myth and that inform us 
pretty much how our mm. world works. Mm. And one of the one of the most famous ones, particularly in romance tradition, is the Cinderella story. Right. Did you want to take this one, Jamie? <laughs> I can, yeah. So the Cinderella story, um, Cinderella myth is waiting for my prince to come, yes. you know. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the, the myth is that you, you know, you spend your time and you, you know, deal with, you know, abusive situations and and just eventually the right person will come along. Um, Do they always? Well, the Cinderella myth they do. Yeah. Don't they? Yeah. And she's worked hard. Yeah. She's worked hard and she's beautiful and she, you know, yeah, yeah she has been transformed. She just needs, you know, a little spit and polish and, yeah. and everything's great. And our marriage myth, our the marriage mm-hmm. right kind of assumes this. Yeah. Your prince has yeah. come, your bridegroom has come, yeah. and is going to yeah. take you to this place where you will now be the bride. And you will be you'll be released from that life of drudgery that you had before. You will become this new <laughs> in the in the realm of Disney princesses. Um <laughs> you will become this, you know, this princess and this person will be completely devoted to you and life is going to be perfect. And you see that in Snow White, you see that in so many of the other ones as well. And there are there are parables out there to this. And I, I think there's this old movie from the late 80s called Broadcast News. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody's ever seen it out there. It's a fantastic movie with Holly Hunter. Mm-hmm. And she is she's a news producer. And she's got two men who are very, very interested in her. And mm-hmm. uh, both have got wonderful, wonderful... Uh, attributes and she's the she's the Cinderella she's Mm. the one that needs to be rescued from her drudgery and both of these princes want to rescue her sounding a little Bridget Jones it does doesn't it yeah except you know they weren't both equal but yes well and in this one they are both equally good and both equally Mm. bad and she has a choice between two men at the very end of it all she chooses neither and she chooses mm-hmm. to be herself and alone, and she's perfectly mm-hmm. happy. Yeah. It's 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 a wonderful kind of parable to say, hey, wait a minute, you can have mm-hmm. these great relationships and still yeah. be completely whole and still be completely happy in everything mm-hmm. that you do. And I, I I have friends who are in that position. Shout out to all the single ladies out there. <laughs> yeah, your prince doesn't have to come. You can do it on your own. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about Outlander. Well, yeah. So we've we've been talking a lot, yes, and, and uh, not about Outlander. Outlander. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring this back. So yeah, Jamie does come. The prince does come, and he's beautiful. But Clara comes for him as well. So if we're talking about a parable that subverts the myth, the subversion is that Claire delivers him just as much as he delivers her. So this patriarchal model of relationship is one that sort of idealizes the role of a hero and the helpless victim. But Outlander is anything but patriarchal. They both save each other. It's as egalitarian as it could be. So romance genre in general is a parable to this mm. myth. And it started with, the, yeah. and I mentioned this, I think, in our first or second episode. Romance history starts from the troubadours in the 12th century. And they mm. sing these songs of love of, of men and women marrying because of love. And actually not even marrying. They just come together and have this amazing romance. They, they, they court mm. each other, which is where we get the mm. word court. Mm. Is they, they play this okay. game of courting. Where they fall mm-hmm. in love and nothing ever is is happens, or sometimes it probably did. It's all um, very chaste. It's all very chaste, uh, <laughs> right? And, 
but but these stories start becoming very very subversive and dangerous because power marriages throughout western europe weren't based in love they were based in power yeah and power was based on assets absolutely on wealth on what you owned or how things were passed on from family to family yeah, so it so, wasn't about how you felt about the other person it was what was going to be economically advantageous absolutely um stephanie kuntz wrote in her book marriage a history that and, and this is this isn't just during the middle ages but it's it's the hundreds of years before as well mm-hmm. for centuries marriage did much of the work that markets and governments do today it organized the production and distribution of goods and people it set up political mm-hmm. economic and military alliances it coordinated the division of labor by gender and age it orchestrated people's personal rights and obligations in everything from sexual relations to the inheritance of property most societies had very specific rules about how people should arrange their marriages to accomplish these tasks. And mm. then somebody said, no, I like love. <laughs> and, and love is a fleeting thing. So yeah. how do you base entire governments on this fleeting thing called love? And yet r- early romance does that. Hmm. Yeah, I can see how subversive that would yeah. be. Then. Yeah, so women in these arranged marriages generally did not have a very powerful position. And so romance stories began placing the woman in at least an equal position or higher. Mm. They made mm-hmm. love the centerpiece of the relationship rather than their wealth or their lineage. I'm hearing Monty Python. She has huge tracts of land. <laughs> <laughs> but father, <laughs> I want to sing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And romance also encouraged marriage between men and women of different social status, which was very, very frowned on. It upsets the norm of how things normally do. Romance, it declares that women are worthy of Mm. this. And that she has a say. Yes, and she can pursue her own Mm -hmm. happiness without having Mm -hmm. to... I I, I read that. That's um, from... Dangerous Book for Girls by Maya Rodale. It's a fantastic book if you haven't read it. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It talks about the history of romance fiction and how it is today. It also sets up the hope that they can mm-hmm. make a difference. So it, it mm-hmm. kind of works as a myth as well. It begins to set yeah. up this hope, but it, it gives, it subverts it in the way that we're not expecting the man to set up this reality. We're setting yeah. it up ourselves. We're saying yeah. this is what I want, and I am I have the right to go out and get that. Yeah. So it gives this power back to women, and the power they have is big enough to tame this wild and wanton man. <laughs> the rogue. Yeah, the rogue. Yeah, the, the rake. rake the, <laughs> the yeah, beast. The highwayman. <clears throat> the, yeah. And then they teach this beast how to love, and then yeah. they show the beast that they can't live without them. It's a parable to marriage because it mm. takes away that myth of this powerful husband and submissive wife and replaces mm-hmm. it with a strong woman who gets what she mm-hmm. wants. It's written by women for women so that it can replace that myth. So romance is a parable. It, it's a parable because it recognizes that women make 77 cents for every dollar a man makes. Mm. It, it, it para- it's a parable for every marginalized single mother who needs a strong heroine to show her how she can buck up and make it another day and be mm-hmm. a good mom to her kids or forgiving herself when she wasn't that one or two times that it happens yeah. because it does even yeah. even women with partners find themselves mm-hmm. in, in a no-win situation absolutely they do. it's a parable for women demanding vindication for being beaten mm-hmm raped, abused, passed over because they exist in a man's world. And romance is a parable because it trusts women with the power to take what they want, when they want it, and on their own terms. 
And the very attribute that makes them strong Mm -hmm. is not being a man, not being Mm man-like, it's their femininity. There's a quote too, um, Jennifer Creasy writes on her blog, she's a contemporary romance author, where romance saying basically tells women that the woman isn't stupid because she's female and that she understands men better than they understand her and that she has a right to control her own life and to children and to vocational fulfillment, to great sex and to a faithful, loving partner. I think that's, yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, 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 yeah. Romance theology, as we're talking about, is actually relational theology. And the thing that makes romance theology or makes relational theology work is the one core piece of it, which is love. Love is still the most subversive thing we can do. Mm -hmm. Loving someone as completely (laughs) as the foolish father, as completely Mm -hmm. as we can, is still one of Mm -hmm. the scariest and more foolish and more subversive things we do. Let's say that again. Love is one of the most subversive things we can do. Wow. It underpins everything from our relationship to God, to each other, to ourselves, and to love yourself in the face of everyone telling you that you should just bow and be submissive, or to deny yourself, which is the mm, the biggest we'll be one. Full of shame. Yeah, is yeah. is a very subversive thing to do. It is, and to do it mm-hmm. allows other people to do it the same, and that's why mm-hmm. it's so subversive because it catches on. It's contagious. Here's the weird thing: is that while while love is extremely subversive, the church has made it into a hierarchy. There is a hierarchy mm-hmm. of love, and it's still practiced today. And so it's usually based on Jesus's new commandment, which is in various forms throughout the the gospels but it's when asked what the greatest commandment is jesus says Mm -hmm. to love the lord your god with all your heart your soul and your mind and then to love your neighbor as yourself in these things all of the law exists and so people have interpreted that is that the the most important love you have is the love of god the Mm -hmm. second most important love you have is the love for each other and the Mm -hmm. third most important love you have is for yourself so there's Mm -hmm. a hierarchy there So they're in a priority. Yes. Loving God is more Mm -hmm. efficacious. Mm -hmm. That means it actually is more effective in your life. Mm -hmm. It provides more of a result as a human Mm -hmm. if you love God Mm -hmm. more than you love others. That's a really troubling theology for me. It is. And it's taught in so many places. I I was taught that growing up. Do God first and, and all others second. And also it's taught that filial love, love between people Mm -hmm. that is um, platonic, is higher than, has a greater sacramental value than the marriage love. So taking holy orders to go out and serve Mm -hmm. others as a nun or as a monk or as Mm -hmm. a priest has a higher... Vows of celibacy. Yes, has a higher sacramental value than Mm -hmm. marriage does. It actually fills Mm -hmm. up your cup of grace more than being married. And that mm-hmm. actually, they, they pull that from scripture. So that's from 1 Corinthians 7, where it says, I wish mm-hmm. all were as Paul is talking. This is probably mm-hmm. Paul. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each mm-hmm. has a particular gift from God, one having one kind, another different kind. To the unmarried and widows, I say, it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. Mm-hmm. But if you're not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it's better to mm-hmm. marry than to be aflame with passion. <laughs> and Jamie quotes that yes! at one point. He says it's better to marry than to burn. Yes! Um, I can't remember the exact context, but I definitely remember hearing that in his voice oh, yeah. in my head as I'm reading this series. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that when we, when we disconnect our love of God from our love of each other or even our love of ourselves, when we, when we disconnect those loves, terrible consequences happen. Yeah. The Crusades. 
<laughs> for instance, just for one, just example. For one example, you've got mm-hmm. the Crusades, people going uh, across the world to save the city of Jerusalem for God mm-hmm. and massacring everybody else and just sacking cities and killing them all. I would argue, though, I, I don't disagree at all, but I would argue that most of the time when you say you're, when you say you're doing something for the love of God, it's not really about God. Correct. I, I agree with you there. That it's really about maintaining power or trying to get control or trying to yeah first it's about something else it's not about and i think we need if anybody says that ever i'm always coming i'm always going to be suspicious i'm always going to be saying you know what are you trying to protect here and that comes from the hermeneutic of suspicion which is the basis (laughs) basically it's just i'm i'm not really believing basis of feminist liberation (laughs) theologies is a hermeneutic of suspicion you read the text and you go Hang on a second. Why are they Who is this that? survey? Yes. Why do we need to know this? Or yeah, so just approaching the text with suspicion will do you a whole world of good. Yeah. Well, it'll also cause you to question a whole lot of stuff you've been taught. So you know, good may be a relative term. It might but, even be parabolic. Um, <laughs> it might save your life. Yes. 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 <laughs> Yeah. But so relational theology is actually the experience of the divine in relationship with each other. So it kind of hmm. creates more of an egalitarian understanding of love is that I can love God as much as I love you, as much as I love me. And then if I'm hanging with you, I experience God. If mm-hmm. I have a, a really amazing moment by myself, I, I experience mm-hmm. God. This is relationship theology mm-hmm. because, you know, First John is God is love and those who abide yeah. in love abide in God and God abides in them. This is love yep. perfect. And yep. that's relational. And that they they work in tandem. Yes. One doesn't push the other. One doesn't hold the other back, but they work in tandem together. Right. So yep. we experience God. We experience the divine, the bigness, as long as there is love. Now, romance theology is kind of a subset of relational theology. It's It, mm. it, it goes a little bit deeper than the filial love that we have for each other. It is based mm-hmm. in a physical, emotional, psychological, passionate, deep, and intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. where romance theology comes in is that in this, in this passionate, intimate, romance, sexual relationship that I've got, mm-hmm. I find God there too. Mm-hmm. And this kind of broad understanding of love and the experience of God actually makes room for gender neutrality. It, it makes room for people of varying different love relationships would also demand a reciprocity and a, and a power balance so it's not just around gender neutrality but also a, a neutrality as far as power goes that no one is over the other um, and that you do it for each other I'm seeing a seesaw so it's not weighted on one side right it, it's um, not it's not the bridegroom coming to save the bride yeah yeah you, yeah. you don't have you save each other which we see in Outlander over and over yeah, and over yeah, yeah, again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and really yeah. love is the big power that makes relational theology and romance theology work. So mm. what what is your favorite quote from Lin-Manuel? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, so many that he does. I could quote Hamilton all day long. Mm-hmm. But as, as himself, as Lin-Manuel Miranda, and love is love is love is love is love is love. It cannot be killed or swept aside. It exists and it, it is undestroyable. It is actually one and the same with God. Where mm-hmm. there is God, there is love. Where there is love, there yeah. is God. So love is actually the foundation for relational theology, but it is Mm -hmm. the heart of romance Mm -hmm. theology. It Mm -hmm. is is the center of romance theology. Wow. 
Okay, so we talked wow. a long so time today. <laughs> we did. And we, I mean, we mentioned Outlander a few times. I think what we're trying to do here, um, even though we didn't talk about Outlander the whole time, is we're trying to set a foundation for how we're going to approach Outlander as we go forward. Yeah. So in future episodes, as we're talking about the relationship between Claire and Jamie or Bree and Roger or, you know, just going on and on and on, we wanted to set an understanding for how we're approaching this text. This is the foundation for how we understand romance. This is how we understand love. This is how we understand those kinds of relationship through a theological lens. So I hope that this hasn't been too boring in the sense of we're not talking outlander, 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 outlander the whole way. But it's more about us being able to say, look, these are the tools that we're using. This is the foundation for which we are approaching this text. And and then we'll start to pick it apart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So here's your homework assignment. Hey, we have, as always, survey questions for this episode. Um, And so what we'd love for you to do is go to our website, the episode page for this episode, um, and there'll be some survey questions at the bottom that we would love to have your thoughts, your ideas, um, and feedback for. So... First question, do you have a community that you read romance with? Does it tend to be a singular activity or do you do it in a community? And do you have a community that you read Outlander with? So those questions are connected. So if you read just regular traditional romance novels, do you do that on your own or do you do that with other people? And then do you have a community that you read Outlander with? Next question, how has Outlander benefited or undermined relationships in your life. Have you mm-hmm. have you tried to reenact the print shop scene? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and has it I gone did. well or bad? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what injuries might you have And we don't want to know about those. Don't tell us those. But one thing that I I think is really interesting about this question is within some of the groups in Facebook that I'm a part of, in the fandom, I have heard people talk about or question their marriages, question their relationships because they don't see them as like Jamie and Claire. And so whether or not their relationships are as healthy, as valid, as whatever... Have the integrity. Put in whatever adjective you want. And, you know, some people... Ex- saying I don't want this unless I can have a Jamie um, and so it, it, yeah we're really curious of how has Outlander benefited or undermined relationships in your life third question is have you ever experienced the divine in a romantic relationship and there's of course the joke that you know more speaking to God happens during sex than any <laughs> other time uh, but um, <laughs> more praying to God happens um, at a bar even Jamie at says you know I feel like God himself when I'm inside you or Claire develops this closer relationship with God when she begins her relationship with Jamie so in the monastery in the first book she has these conversations and these thoughts and then when she comes upon Jamie praying in the well I think that's an echo in the bone so there are these these moments of sacred encountering the sacred within the context of a romantic relationship and we're wondering if you've ever experienced that yourself and if you want to tell us about that then you're more than welcome to obviously we don't need any details if it's of a sexual nature but it just would be really interesting for us to hear some stories about how you might experience the divine in a romantic relationship excellent so that's the end of this podcast and uh the next time that we come together we will be focusing only on 
Outlander. <laughs> Outlander. Outlander. So we're we're back yes, in the world of back. Jamie and Claire. Yes. Yeah, so and we're going to be um, focusing on Outlander as actually a parable to the romance genre. So come back in a couple of weeks, and we will have a new podcast for you that explores that. So that's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. We'd really appreciate it if you'd review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, as it helps people find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Just click on the support us button at the top of the page at outlandersoul.com and every little bit helps. Also, we'd love to hear your questions, thoughts, and ideas. Part of the work we're doing is gathering data on how fans interact with and value Outlander in their lives. So we're interested in what you have to say. And we know Outlander fans have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> so please respond to our survey questions found on our website related to this episode or follow the links on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. You can also contact us by email at outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com or via our website at outlandersoul.com. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. Bye.